Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shane Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Roark. Guys, I got a good one. I am here today with my friend, Dr. Andy Sparks, and he is a, uh, for those who don't know him, he is, how to describe him? Oh, man, he does a lot of stuff. We'll get his accolades at the very beginning of this episode. He is a uh, feline medicine specialist. He is uh, he is one of the co-editors of the new Purina Institute Clinical Nutrition Handbook. Uh, that's a big deal, and we talk about that. We talk about uh, we talk about feline uh, cystitis. We talk about urolithiasis. We talk a lot about the handbook. So uh, for just, just to fill you in real quick, the Purina Institute Clinical Nutrition Handbook is a magnificent resource and it's 100% free. You can grab a copy of it in the show notes right now. I um, I just got to pause and say, I love that Purina has done this. I love that they're putting this out. I love that they're giving away free. Just grab yourself a copy. Grab two. They're free. Uh, you can get as many as you want. Back the truck up. They're, they're digital copies and you can have uh you can have them but guys this is a great resource i love that they're putting it on we talk a bit about uh we talk about how it came together about how it to best use it we talk about how it's different for other resources that are out there so all that stuff is woven into some really good pearls of feline medicine gang let's get into this episode oh and uh this episode is made possible ad free by the purine institute let's do it this is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Andrew Sparks. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, it's my my pleasure. You are uh you are fascinating. You are uh you are a feline specialist. You have you have been in academia and private practice. Uh you have been all over the place. You are an editor or co-editor of the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery. You are a co-editor on the new clinical nutrition handbook that Purina has just put out sort of through Purina Institute. You do so many things. And so I appreciate, I appreciate you making time to be here. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about specifically the, the clinical nutrition handbook that Purina is putting out. So this is, this is kind of a big deal. Uh, this is a, a pretty monumental size, uh, size project that's being put out and they're putting out for free, which I think is absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. I, I love it. Can you start to go ahead and just give me an overview of what, what were the goals going into this, uh, into this handbook? Oh yeah. In- interesting. Uh, I think when, when it was set up to, to produce this second edition, which is effectively a complete rewrite of, of the handbook, I think the, the key goal w- was to provide uh, information on clinical nutrition that, that is really accessible to everybody in the veterinary healthcare team across the world, li- literally. So this is designed to be a kind of global resource. And behind that, I think, is this vision that we, we need to have meaningful nutrition conversations at every appropriate appointment in the clinic. And the resources to be able to do that should be available to, to everyone. And that's really what we envisage this handbook would help achieve. So how do you how do you set that up from a structural standpoint? So how is how is it different from a, from a textbook? I, I love the, I love the um, one of the things I really like about this resource is the is sort of the hyper focus on practicality and the ability to use it in between appointments in a very efficient way. Like how, how did how do you how do you structure that differently from a textbook to make it accessible like that? Yeah, good good question. So uh, I, I think. Three three things that that I, I think are worthwhile highlighting is it, it's global focus, so it, it really is designed to be a, a global resource re- relevant to uh, anyone in the world. So 
there's a collection of over 40 international authors that, that contributed to, to this handbook. Second thing is every chapter is really focused. Uh, there is enough information within each chapter to uh, get a good handle on the, the background of, of the particular disease or, or condition that, that's being talked about, um, but really focusing in on understanding nutritional recommendations as well. So that that's, that's a kind of tough ask when you're dealing with international specialists to really focus in and, and make the information succinct, but that, that has been really well achieved, I think, and to make this really practical. So the chapters are Sure, they, they've got a good overview of the condition, but it's really focused on understanding those nutritional recommendations and really putting that into practice. So you, you're absolutely right. I mean, th this is designed to be a handbook that, that is used in, in consults. Uh, you know, there, there's material that, that's really readily accessible. So in consults and between consults as well, just, just to have a look and, and see what's going on. So up-to-date, really relevant information. It seems like it would be really challenging to get specialists from all over the world to come together and sort of write in a uh, uniformly accessible sort of way. Was that was that a challenge or was it pretty easy to get people to, to line up? It's always a challenge. Um, and I, I would have to pay um, tribute to the, the lead editor on the book, Catherine Lennox from Purina Institute. Uh, she did all the heavy lifting on this and was twisting arms and uh, getting people to write a deadline. Honestly, I, I've never been involved in uh, authoring or, or co-authoring, editing uh, a book where the timeline was sh so short and so much was achieved within a, a short period of time. So, uh, yeah, it's it's challenging, but we got there. And I, I think also it has to be said that using a, an, an international group of authors you know we, we chose people that were specialists in their field not not just nutritionists you know we, we've, we've got specialists in internal medicine in behavior in uh, surgery you know all, all sorts of specialists that, that are contributing and essentially you know they're, they're enthusiastic about getting people engaged with nutrition in their particular specialities and, and making this work so it's been good when you sat down and kind of envisioned what this resource would look like, did it turn out that way, or were there were there significant changes? Were you surprised? Did it did it morph or evolve from what you originally envisioned? So I, I think, in all honesty, uh, when, when when I sat down and, and looked at the kind of finished product and read some of the chapters that, as an editor, perhaps I was less involved with and less less familiar with. I was super pleased with, with the way that, that it came together. I, I think that we have achieved what we set out to achieve. Um, it is always challenging, and it's, it's challenging keeping it brief and succinct and really practical, but at the same time having sufficient information there to make it genuinely uh, usable and useful. But I think we got that balance pretty well right, and and I'm really pleased with the outcome. What was it like to edit and then also have chapters that you wrote in the book? Was that different? Was it interesting writing your own stuff and then switching over and trying to sort of edit and read other people's stuff, or was that pretty easy? I, di I didn't find that too difficult, to be honest, um, but but it, it was kind of interesting. Uh, as I said earlier, Ka Catherine Lennox at Purina Institute, she did all the heavy lifting, so she edited every single chapter. And then uh, she worked with myself and Dr. Ronald Corby from Utrecht University, and we, we were the kind of co-editors with her, and we got to look at half the chapters each in terms of editing and, and contributing su suggestions. Um, so um, Ronald and, and Catherine looked at 
my two chapters and came back to me with, with suggestions for improvement. You know, it, it, it's a good kind of organic process, I think. Yeah. Um, having, you know, at least a couple of people looking at chapters and, and making suggestions for improvement and refinement, you know, it, it makes it good at the end of the day. You have uh, you have more than one chapter. You have a couple of chapters in this book. Yeah, so idiopathic cystitis and uh, urolithiasis, calcium oxalate, and struvite stones in cats. What are the significant updates in idiopathic cystitis from between the first and second edition? Like I, I know uh, I know that there's there's been some growth, and as I said, that we sort of overhaul the way the handbook was done. So what, what are the what are the big takeaways in in in, in, in it is, it, We'll start with idiopathic cystitis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I always enjoy writing kind of reviews or, or book chapters like this because it gives you a chance to kind of refresh yourself on, on all of the up-to-date information. And one of the things that, that always strikes me is how much we don't know. I mean, there, there's stuff that we do know, but there's a lot of stuff we, we still don't know. And that, that is definitely true of idiopathic cystitis. Um, I mean, worldwide, idiopathic cystitis probably accounts for about 60% of cases of lower unit tract disease in cats that we see, but we still really don't have a good handle on this disease. We, we don't know if this is one condition or if it's a syndrome with a, a lot of underlying causes. A um, lot of talk, obviously, about the role of stress in idiopathic cystitis and stress perhaps as an underlying cause or major contributory factor to it uh, as a disease. And th there's some fascinating research that, that's been done in that regard. But I, I think the, the picture honestly is still really unclear about that. We, we don't really have a, a strong handle on how stress is actually involved. And indeed, you know, the, the difference between cause and effect, because if you're looking at, at a cat, and a lot of the research has been done in cats with chronic, long-term, quite severe idiopathic cystitis, and in those sort of cats, you don't really know. It is when when you observe indicators of stress and perhaps maladaptive stress or abnormal stress responses, is that a cause of the disease or is that an effect of the disease? Because these cats are, are painful. Yeah, they're, they're going through a, a, a lot of significant disease there, and so the disease itself is going to be causing stress for the cat. So. I think although we, we assume that stress may be involved in the pathogenesis, I'm, I, I'm not sure that we've really been able to tease out how much it's a cause and how much it's an effect of the disease. So still a lot of work to, to be done in that respect. Definitely you know, look, looking at stress and, and trying to improve stress in, in the environment and minimize stress that's always going to be helpful because that's going to improve the, the welfare of the cat, whether or not it's a trigger for the disease. So definitely worthwhile looking at that. But I think the really interesting thing when, when you come to idiopathic cystitis, there have been a whole bunch of clinical trials looking at, at different drug therapies and interventions. The only clinical trials, controlled clinical trials, that have shown a positive effect from an intervention are looking at dietary intervention. And there are, to, to my knowledge at least, there, there are at least three studies that have been published which have shown a significant effect of dietary intervention. So stress may well be important, and certainly we, we need to be looking at, at stress in these cats, but we need to be looking at their diet as well and optimizing their diet. Um, exactly what the, the most optimum diet is for, for a cat with FIC, I don't think we have that sorted out yet, but certainly there, there are some 
good indications from st- some of the studies that have been published, at least. Do you think that there's a specific that do you think different cats do better on different diets? Is is that I mean, as opposed to saying this is the diet, have you found in your hands that some cats, for whatever reason, uh, seem to respond much better to diet A and then other cats to diet B? Or do you think it's not that simple? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I, I think with with some cats, we definitely, at least anecdotally, we, we see good response to certain dietary interventions. So um, historically, when I've seen cases of FIC, a lot of my emphasis has been on trying to improve water intake. So switching to a wet diet if they've been on a dry diet or looking at other ways to improve water intake. And certainly from my clinical experience, I think there are some cats that respond uh, pretty well to that uh, as an intervention. Um, But having said that, I think clinical experience can be misleading. So those controlled trials that we really need to be looking at to to have good quality evidence for what we do. No, I I completely agree with that. And that actually, I I, I was toying with asking this question and now you've, you've landed right on it. So I have to, I have to ask it, but you know, our, our clinical experience can be misleading, you know, and we were human beings and we tell ourselves stories about the experiences that we have. And we, we look for trends and, and sometimes they're, they're manufactured. So, you know, it, it was interesting when you were talking about the stress component. And I thought about how many times I've had people come in and say, oh, well, we had friends visiting or there's, you know, workmen in the house. And I can't help but wonder, Andrew, if that's, I can completely see that not being a factor and me having made it up, you know, because if you go looking for it and you say, was there anything that changed? And they say, oh, well, we had a repairman and you go, aha, yes. And the truth is that that may be completely manufactured. Are you are you sold on that type of narrative at all? If a pet owner says to you, you know, I heard this was stress and, and we had visitors from out of town. Do you kind of nod and go along with that and say, yeah, it could be or or do you are are you more skeptical than that? That's a really tough one. I I, I have become more skeptical over, over time. I have to say. I mean, as you say, I think we're very good at, at telling ourselves stories, and we're very good at uh, looking at ways to affirm what we already believe is true. So, if you're sold on the idea that that this is a, a disease that's caused by stress or is triggered by stress, then it's very easy to find something that's happened in the recent past that that could have triggered that. The more uh, objective uh, way of looking at that is to kind of do case control studies and and see if you can identify environmental stresses that that are genuinely associated with with cats that have idiopathic cystitis and are just seen in those cats and and not in control cats. Uh, when, when you look at case control studies, and there have been a few that, that have been published, there, there is really no consistent findings in terms of potential environmental stresses. You know, you, you would think that something like a multi-cat household would be an obvious stressor, you know, where, where there may be conflict between cats in the household. You, you would think that maybe indoor-outdoor access may be involved or uh, ready access to a, to a litter tray, all, all sorts of other things. But these case control studies that have been published do not find any consistent environmental stresses that are involved in cats. And that makes me a little bit more skeptical. That's interesting. Oh, I, I completely hear what you're saying. I'm absolutely sure that I'm guilty of creating stories in my, in my own mind around that. But anyway, oh, I do. just, uh, do. I mean, it, well, it's, it's human nature and we all, we all want to understand it's, it's hugely frustrating to feel like this is a common 
problem. And this condition, it kills cats. If I mean, it, this is the number one reason cats end up in the shelter, and it, it, it is a yep. it is a significant uh, health risk for for cats. And, and to say, I, I feel like my knowledge of why this happens is so limited. It's it's, it's a frustrating experience. I think we all want to feel that we have con- control and a and an understanding insight that that can be really helpful. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't. I, I don't. I don't want people to get the impression that that I'm dismissing stress oh, as, no. as a potential trigger. Um, or as a significant component of the disease. Because as I said, you know, whether or not stress is actually triggering the episodes, these cats undoubtedly are stressed. They're, they're fearful and they're anxious because of the, the discomfort and so on that, that they're in anyway. So I think it's absolutely important for us uh, to, to be considering stress and trying to minimize that in these cases. I, th- I think maybe the, the narrative that we have about, you know, this is a, a stress-induced disease might just be a little bit simplistic. No, I like that. That 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 makes total sense. Talk to me a little bit about the uh, urolithiasis. When you when you set out to 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 write this, you know, it's clearly a staple when we talk about clinical nutrition and things like that. What were sort of the pearls and pitfalls that you wanted to highlight? And I say pearls are meaning what are what are the things that I think are most valuable for clinicians, and the pitfalls are what are the the errors that maybe or the or the missed uh, opportunities that I that I see doctors make. So when you sat down to 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 write the chapter, do you have objectives like that in your mind? Yeah. I- I guess I, I wanted, again, ju- just to look at, at recent literature that, that has been published in, in this area and, and really try and make this as up-to-date as I could. And lo- looking at that, I, I guess, you know, there, there's a lot of epidemiological information on stone formation in cats, which, which is mainly produced by the big laboratories where, where you submit stones to for analysis, you know, whether that's in the U.S. or Canada or, or anywhere else in the world. And so there's a lot of publications looking at, at kind of epidemiological evidence for this. We, we know that you know, 90% of feline urolists, more than 90%, are either struvite or calcium oxalate. Those, those are the, the two big ones, for, for sure. I think, uh, you know, there, there's been some fascinating trends in, in the relative uh, importance of struvite and calcium oxalate over the years, you know, where struvite used to be the, the dominant, certainly in the early 80s, struvite used to be the dominant stone. Um, there was a switch by the, the late 90s, for sure, so that calcium oxalate became more prevalent. Now it's perhaps a, a little bit more even again. I think one of the things that that did strike me just just going through all of that literature again is that that that's potentially a misleading um, bit of information. Though you know, it's very hard to draw information from stones that have been submitted to a laboratory, which have either been removed surgically or may have been passed naturally. Um, stones that are submitted to a laboratory and looking at the composition of those stones and then trying to apply that to the general population of cats, that's, that's a tough one to do. So in terms of the genuine epidemiology of stone disease and, and the prevalence of these different stones, I think it, it, it's a tough one to, to really get a, a proper handle on. But the thing that, that really struck me, I suppose, is that even when you look at those figures, you know, say roughly 50% of stones that are removed from cats right now end up being struvite stones. Those, those cats didn't need to go through a surgery. We, we can dissolve those stones with diet. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of cats that, that we're still putting through surgeries that potentially could be resolved medically. 
so I think that there's a big opportunity there that you know we 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 could avoid a lot of cats having to go under the knife. That absolutely makes sense, Doctor Andrew Sparks. You uh, you were amazing. Thank you. For, uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for going through this with me. Are there um are there any final pearls as you start to to look back at sort of this work and put it out? Is there anything else that you really want to make sure that clinicians take away from the chapters that you did? Any any final, you know, final parting words to say, hey, uh, this is, if you could give me one piece of advice sort of going <laughs> going forward, what, what would it be? I love the idea that uh, a, a good percentage of stones can be can be dissolved and maybe we're a little bit quick to go to surgery in, in those cases. I, I think that that's something I'm absolutely going to put away and hold on to because that's the type of information you like to have just nagging you in the back of your mind. So fi- final thoughts, I, I guess, you know, I, I am... I'm a strong advocate of, of evidence-based medicine. And I think this handbook uh, really helps us to, to achieve that. It, it provides succinct information, but it provides really up-to-date up information. And it's unbiased information as well. You know, the, the handbook doesn't talk about commercial products. It's talking about, you know, an approach to, to nutritional management of, of a whole variety of different diseases. Uh, the book, I think you said at the top that this book is is available free of charge. Um, it, the, there is no charge for accessing this. All anybody has to do is is sign up for communications at Purina Institute, purinainstitute.com. Sign up for, for email uh, alerts from them and you get access to this resource completely free of charge. Um, and Purina Institute itself, uh, again, it's, it's not involved in, in promoting particular commercial diets. It's about providing the science behind nutrition. So they, they have a bunch of other resources there as well, including well-pet nutrition. Uh, you know, this, this handbook is focused obviously on, on disease management, but there's well-pet well nutrition there as well. So, you know, it's, I, I hope that this is going to be a widely used resource. Uh, I think there's a lot of work gone into it. And um, yeah. I love this sort of model of distributing information from from Purina, like just the I, this thing, uh, it's it is a I think it's a PDF uh, when 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 you download it, and it's just I don't know. You can I use I I have a lot of PDFs. I, I just get a lot of information this way, and like you, I, I keep them on my phone and put them on on Google Drive and access it wherever I am. It's just it's a it's just an elegant solution, and the idea that you would get some sort of a reference material like this and said, oh, here you go, guys. I, I just uh, it makes me so happy. I just I just I love this project. So anyway. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for being here. Guys, thanks for tuning in and listening. Take care of yourselves, everybody. I will put links to Purina Institute and then also directly to where you can pick up the handbook in the show notes. Take care, everybody. Thanks so much. And that's the episode. Guys, I hope you liked it. I hope you got something out of it. Thanks again to Purina Institute for making this episode possible and also making the Clinical Nutrition Handbook possible. As I said, uh, link in the show notes. Go ahead and grab a copy for yourself. Take care, everybody. I'll see you later on. 